Hello, my name's Dominic Allard. I'd like to read you one of my poems, which is called Time Was. Time was when footpaths were followed, and summer and winter each had a power over us, neither too hot or cold, too wet or dry. Time was when love stood in a poem like flowers in a vase, lovely until the petals began to fall in heaps around the bowl. Time was many memories ago, Far back among the days that stretch between then and now, a road we can remember, but not retake. Time is the ever here and now, an empty corridor where the echoes we made downstairs in the way ring about us. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Alan Moore Podcast, mm-hmm. presented by Struggle Session. I am Leslie the Third, and I'm Jack Allison. Jack, I'm so excited to be doing this with you. Me I, too. I have to say, this has been a wonderful experience. Today, it's another book club episode. We are discussing uh, chapters six through ten of Alan Moore's Jerusalem. That's from modern times to the breeze that plucks her apron. Mm-hmm. And man, this is a really interesting uh, it's starting to pop off a little bit it yeah, is, it is starting to pop up I, it's like it's not getting super plotty but it is getting a little bit like i don't know it's getting starting to pop off what more can i say it's starting to yeah, pop off a little bit we're still in our humans of northampton section where we're mm-hmm. going around and just seeing a day in the lives of these various people at different places, sometimes different, at, at mostly at the same place, but sometimes a little bit. Uh, one, I think one chapter was in London, but different time, different eras, and they're all kind of, but they all kind of overlap with one another in different mm-hmm. ways, especially these five, where you go from the first chapter, where uh, uh, that's called Modern Times, and we can get right into it. Sure, yeah, let's do it. 
our POV character, you might not pick this up just from reading it, is actually Charlie Chaplin. That's right. That's right. You know, I was when I saw this uh, in the annotations that we've been using, which, by the way, we should mention these annotations are very useful. Where is that at again? Let me try to find it. Um, the annotations we've been using are at alanmorejerusalem.wordpress.com. Um, and if it's a chapter where they haven't done the annotation yet, there's usually still some information in the comments on the page. Pretty useful. Um, but that could be helpful for people who, you know, need them. I was able to figure out it was Charlie Chapman. Wow. Wow. Just to be clear, I didn't need the <laughs> annotations. I just wanted to clarify that since I did. I didn't. I did need the annotation. And at first I was like, is that so? Like, I was like, maybe that's like a little bit of a stretch. And then I was like, oh, no, this is definitely the case. That is definitely Charlie Chaplin in this chapter. A chapter obviously dealing with a lot of themes that Alan Moore comes back to a lot in Jerusalem and other chapters do as well. This idea about the working artist, the proletarian Mm -hmm. artist, which Alan Moore obviously sees Charlie Chaplin as and chooses to uh, focus on him before he's made it big. When That's right. He's just like a, a street tramp who's, you know, putting on little shows and uh, making faces for kids and stuff. There's even a funny little joke about the tramp. He's like, oh, I'm sure being a millionaire tramp won't be in my future or whatever. Which, <laughs> oh, very clever, Mr. Moore. Very clever, Mr. Moore. Yeah, and if you know anything about Charlie Chaplin, you know that he basically tried to... um marry every woman he met now and, and, and woman i don't know about it i don't know about that leslie because some of them were girls yes 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 <laughs> some of them yes. were technically girls not, yes. not women you know yet basically this chapter is charlie chaplin he's kind of you know ta- thinking about his life yeah. and you know, where he is and where his career is and has how he's kind of bombing around going. northampton a little bit just like kind of having a walk and thinking about how like his life sucks <laughs> in every era the people in this area are complaining about gentrification. They're mm-hmm. complaining about poverty. Poverty. They're complaining about class structure and how there is no escape from this. And Charlie Chaplin is like, no, fuck that. I'm going to see the world. I'm going to get out of here. Most of these people can't. It's sad, you know, that they don't have the talent I do right. to get out. But uh, hopefully... I get to do overseas shows. My names are my name is starting to show up on marquees and stuff. And you know, it's especially you know useful for Charlie Chaplin uh, in this chapter because it is just before World War One. So everybody else, like he even kind of mentioned that he's like, it seems like a war is starting. He's like, things are not good between Germany and England, and like it yes. seems like a war might break out. He's like, hopefully I'll be overseas before that happens. Uh, and Charlie Chaplin did end up going to the United States before World War One broke out. This chapter is extended damn shorty from Charlie Chaplin <laughs> at this uh, woman he meets on the street, yeah. and they may and he, may Vernal. Like, oh, May Vernal, uh, who is part of the Vernal family, which we've met earlier. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to a lot more about May in, in a second. But he's disappointed because he sees that May has a daughter, even though she looks very young. She has a daughter. But then he's like, wow, that daughter is really beautiful, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but we're, it's, we're not supposed to be creeped out because every it's recurring. Everybody who sees this child is like, damn, this is the it's most like beautiful an angelic baby. baby. Yeah. Even in the later chapter, Henry is like, damn, that's a, even for a white baby, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first cute white baby I've seen. Yeah. Oh. And here we, and with the overlapping narrative, we do see here, uh, Henry in this chapter. Yeah. Cause Charlie sees a guy, a black guy 
driving around a, on a cart with wheels made out of rope. With, the, with the rope on them. Yeah. Yeah. And so this chapter is just a, a little preview of what's uh, to come. I it's don't know. It's kind of great. It kind of like sets the scene for the next couple chapters and, and it does it through the eyes of Charlie Chaplin, which is such a funny and interesting choice. Yeah. And what you get in Jerusalem a lot is just Alan Moore is trying to really tell us like this place is actually as cool and as full of history. I'm like, I'm not, not, not I'm not bullshitting you. It's actually <laughs> like a real thing. And he, he just keeps hammering at home and again and again with all like just this little place that you never heard of is, has been the source of so much of our culture right. and our history that we don't even think about. People passed through, certainly. Uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin spent a little time there, if nothing else. So he meets May, and he's disappointed that she's married. She's kind of a flirt herself, and so she, like, has, you know, kind of a little bit of a flirtation with him, knowing that she's married and happy and happily married, but she doesn't see any harm in it, and you get in you, but you don't hear that internal monologue. She's excited to, you know, talk to this handsome young man, this handsome young actor who's going off right. and might be doing something special. There's just a kind of chemistry there, but it does feel like it's just, you know, a ship's passing in the night moment or whatever, just like a little bit of like idle flirting to pass the time or something. And what, what we were, was hinted at, uh, what they talk about is that they've known each other basically their whole life they've just never talked it's hard to talk about this book because it's so like it keeps looping back on itself well the whole idea you know and and this is something that Moore's done in a lot of his work but the whole idea is that like time is all taking place concurrently you know what i mean and that's just and you saying that is already jumping us ahead (laughs) well and more and more into the middle that's also that's also jumping back to him talking about Watchmen. even you know what i mean like the whole idea in in Moore's fiction you know in comics is like you're supposed to be like flipping back in the book yeah. and trying to like yes, reconnect he, old things he says he says that specifically i think i've already mm-hmm. played the, that, that interview clipped in one of the episodes i, I think, think it was actually it was think it was one maybe it was in the comic writing um essay oh yes yeah i think it might have been in the essay on comic uh, on writing comics yeah so he talks about you know the beauty of a novel is that you can look back and forth mm-hmm. in the book and that's part of the reading experience and he feels like uh comic book writers should take advantage of those things instead of just aping uh charlie and may meet up with each other and they're like oh we've known each other for years turns out charlie chaplin's mother was there when may was being born in the gutter (laughs) (laughs) at the same time so they like knew each other even before they knew each other before they even never were alive basically Yeah, it, it it really is a beautiful couple chapters, this kind of like interweaving, you know, and, and this, you know, the, the characters sort of more tightly interweaving with each other. And but while also like very beautifully, like cutting between different time periods and stuff like that, like it, it is it's really an impressive couple of chapters. So chapter seven and this was a, a really good one. I really mm-hmm. like this. Uh, down ass white boy, Alan Moore. <laughs> really going out there saying you know what i'm gonna write a black character i'm gonna use dialect in 2021 and i'm gonna nail it and talk explicitly about racial issues yeah explicitly from a black man's perspective yeah i think he as i said before about more he gets a lot of stuff that i don't think a lot of white people get about the you know about the black experience 
I mean, I thought that this chapter was like beautifully written, and I I really like uh, the Henry character. The Henry oh, character yeah, he's is such an awesome. interesting guy to to be in Northampton. It's like. I guess like rodeo, like former slave rodeo performer who ended up in uh, Northampton. Who gather, who go, who makes his money by gathering useless trinkets yeah. and walking around town in a, with a cart with wheels made out of rope because unlike rubber, they don't, uh, they don't go flat. Yeah. You never see ropes go flat. <laughs> He's the only black guy there that any of these people have seen. But they're actually, and they, you know, they, they, every time he walks up to somebody, they like make a racist joke, but it's like, it's, it's because they make shitty jokes about each other all the time. It's, it's it, out of, it's out of Brit- Britishness. It's not yes. out of racism. Uh, yes. It's out of Britishness. They really get into it. He really gets into it. He, uh, he, Henry talks about, and this is something I experienced living in Japan is one thing to deal with impersonal kind of like you're just a foreigner type of mm-hmm. reasons and i feel like henry like they talk a, a lot of the people talk about him it's like oh you got a funny accent you sound american you sound intelligent more intelligent yeah. than us, which is just like looking at him as like more of an american and a different person than like a subhuman creature, which is what yeah. you get in the American former racism. There, there is kind of running through here, and more is like explicit about it. He's like Americans are more racist than British <laughs> <Yes>. people. <laughs> he like yeah. says it explicitly. Yeah, he does. Like, he's it. like Americans are more racist against black people. Also, in the earlier chapter, um, I can't remember who it was, but when they were talking about freeing the slaves, he was like, you know, the uh, I they were talking about like the union wasn't right, like pe- working people are working people, and they shouldn't be slaves or whatever. He really is driving home that British people are less racist than Americans. Well, at least these these people in Northampton because true, they're true. all working class. So his argument yeah. is basically the race the same racism doesn't exist because they're like class is so much more important and apparent in their lives. So when they see Henry, they just see another worker who they can shoot the shit with and make a right. make a crack about. These these people of the boroughs are kind of all down just in the muck together. In this story, he's just tr- going about his day of work, and somebody mentions to him, uh, and he was sing. I think he was singing to himself at one point the song "Amazing Grace," and yeah. he was thinking to himself. He was kind of he was disappointed when he learned that it was actually a white man who had wrote it, but he's excited to learn that it was a white man who had spent some time in Northampton and might have had mm-hmm. uh, might have been buried there. So he goes out looking for his grave to kind of try and understand, and then he meets this priest who kind of breaks it to him. He's he tells him the story about John Newton and how he came to write the story, and uh, after you know being um beating as a child and used and sexually abused as a child uh on this um pi- uh, kind of slaver ship and when he got off the slaver ship he ended up becoming a slaver himself well slave. it's, it's funny because it, the, the way the story's told uh, uh to henry here is that he's like wow like you know he spent time on a slaver ship and then he like truly knew what slavery is about like i guess that's why a white guy could have written this song and then the twist at the end is like and then he also became a slaver anyway so it's like even this like idea that he like had some understanding of the pain or something like that he still went on and just caused it for other people uh in any way yeah and henry talks a, a lot about this all these 
you know, chapters are very contemplative. They're, you know, regular people just thinking about morality and they go back and forth over all these issues. I, I feel like so much just trying to get you from point A to point B. So there's no discursion. There's no like people having conversations with themselves. Like that doesn't really. This is very much. This is very much like a walking around book. This is a lot of people like taking a stroll around Northampton and like thinking about shit for a really long time. And it really is appealing because of this kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, I guess the the continuity of the of the neighborhood, you know, sort of remaining the same. But, you know, so much of these chapters are people just like strolling around Northampton and and having a think. Yeah. And what they're thinking about usually are these extremely like important moral issues, even though most of these people are poor, uneducated, um, never have left Northampton. But they're thinking about slavery because they see they've experienced, you know, some of that pain in their lives or something similar. And they're wondering, how is the world like this? And they're thinking about their their stay in their city and how it's changing without their power, even though they've lived there for and all their family has lived there and their all their family will always live there but they don't really have any power over how right. it looks how it appears how it, anything else or we'll find in the later chapters even like where they get to live in it you know what i mean like you know they ba- like there's a part in the later chapter where you know the 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 state basically realizes they can make more money with the people out. And so they just like push everybody out. Uh, uh, they don't even get to control like where they live, you know, in this area. Um, but you know what Charlie, uh, uh, what, what Henry is thinking about, you know, for, we for should this mention chapter. that his name is Henry, but his nickname in Northampton is black. Charlie, his black Charlie, his black Charlie. Oh okay. God. I, 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 we, it would be remiss if I, we didn't mention that a girl may, Says mm-hmm. to Black Charlie that he should carry sparklers with him so that he can see it. It's just, but it, it is like, but then we see it from the other, from her perspective on the other side, and she, it's very like curb your enthusiasm, where she's like, "Oh my god, why did I just say that?" that. Like she's like immediately like ashamed. I like that because almost every time somebody does something shitty, they kind of feel bad about it. And yeah, you get this, you get another half, a fuller picture. Of people, and she even thinks to herself, "Oh, that's as stupid as saying that white people during the day should like carry around like when, yeah, yeah, like black paint or something like yeah. that." Um, you know, but Hen- you know, Henry in this chapter uh, gives a lot of thought to cancel culture. You know, he <laughs> thinks about whether or not we should cancel the creator of the of the person who made the song "Amazing Grace," and ultimately decides he can still continue to enjoy the song, um, even though you know the creator is a fucked up guy. First of all, he's disappointed to learn that it wasn't a black guy. Then he's disappointed to learn about his full story. He was a slaver. Yeah. yeah. But he still, you know, is able to find beauty in the song. And Henry's just like a great, great character. Mm-hmm. I don't, one thing I don't know yet is why he start talking about Buffalo Bill, other than the fact that Alan Moore is always talking about Buffalo Bill and yeah. the Wild West and shit. But I hope we come back to that. I don't know. I hope he has a story to tell in the West. Did he not mention him in like From Hell or something like that? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, here. yeah, he is in From Hell, and I think one or two other things. Okay, and there's, I mean, we could spend all day talking about the references here, but Alan Moore, he could possibly be accused of self 
plagiarism, obviously. He is dealing with a lot of stuff that he's dealt with in his comics and previous yes. <laughs> literature. But well, I feel like almost, he's just trying to get it like right. This, it feels like this is like the last, this is like the final statement on it. You know what I mean? This is like the synthesis of all of it. And he's trying to get the ideas proper. And he's like, okay, what have I really been writing about this whole time? The small town where I literally have been this whole time. So <laughs> yes. let's, let's like try it. Let's try it on this and see if I can finally get it right. Yeah. Well, I mean, moving on to chapter uh, eight, Atlantis. This is really, really specific because this mm. chapter is literally just about Alan Moore's friend. Um, yes. <laughs> the character's name is Benedict Perrick, he, and he's a poet um, and a dirtbag. He lives with his mom. He's like farting all nasty when he wakes up. He just likes to try. He likes to try to get other people to like buy beers for him because yes. he only likes to spend like $10 on beer every day. He's a, he's a dirtbag. He's great. And he's friends with Alma, who is, of course, Alan Moore. And yes. he sees Alma and he every, and he's known Alma for a while. And they used to be, they used to work together, were artists together. I think yeah. they went to college together, or at least worked on like a college periodical. The description of Alma in this scene is like, she's got more rings under her eyes than she has on her like spindly fingers. <laughs> it's like, he's like, so, it's very funny. He's like t talking about how tall she is yes. and how she like leans in. As a type of subtle intimidation it's like very funny to listen to alan moore describe himself like through the eyes of another person <laughs> and in a mostly negative uh, way yes. <laughs> like he, he he's even specific like oh like, like she she every time you you talk to her she does something that you know you you're supposed to think is so nice and genuine but it's really just her lord and her greatness mm -hmm. over you and trying to make you feel grateful for it piece mm -hmm. of shit and he kind of he, he's kind of feeling some kind of way and he uh blurts out that he uh needs some money and hits her up for it and he immediately regrets it but then funnily enough she just responds instead of like using it to torture him which he expects he actually she just says oh i'm loaded actually so here you go yeah, she's like, oh, yeah, for sure, and doesn't even look at the amount of money and hands it to him, which is, like, extra shameful. And also and also is, like, exactly the thing he described about, like, she'll do something that is actually, like, totally, like, egotistical and, like, you want to feel grateful for it. Yeah, and, but the funny thing is he ends up feeling grateful, even though it's only, yeah. like, 20 pounds. <laughs> but he's like, yo, well, shit, it's 20 pounds, you know? 20 pounds, that's not bad. I'm yeah. kind of flush. He's like, I can go get a drink. I can get yeah. some, some food. I can do yeah. what, whatever. And, he, you know, he has, you know, kind of a, a rough night out. He goes to a bar. He meets a woman. He thinks maybe uh, we should mention that it's Marla from earlier. Yeah, he meets Marla from earlier, and they, they're kind of she tries to chat him up. Where he he gets reeled in. It's the saddest thing to watch this happen. But he like thinks she's really interested, and then she's like, "So like you want to like you want to like ha go have a, have a fuck or whatever?" And he's like, "Oh shit, I thought she like thought I was cool or maybe was a fan or something like yeah. that." Oh, it's such a shame. Benedict, he's more or less portrayed as kind of a what you would might call a, a loon if you saw him. He's always just cracking up, saying weird, odd things. Very I mean, publicly. throughout this entire chapter, he like giggles in the actual like in in the scene descriptions. In in the descriptions, he's all the time just giggling. And and you know, this book deals a lot with mental 
illness mm-hmm. and there's a very interesting thing where he talks about you know if uh i were you know mentally ill a couple hundred years ago it would be better they would just let me do my poor poetry i wouldn't have to get a straight job i right. could just be i could just be you know yeah i just just find a patron and i wouldn't have to worry about all this other shit that i can't do I thought that was a very interesting part. He's like, now I'd have to like go be in like some safe living center with people like looking after me all day and having to fill out forms and all this kind of shit. I thought that was very interesting. I was like, wow, like the idea that it was better to be like poor and insane a hundred years ago when there was less means testing. It's really pretty wild. As we said, it's based on a real guy. And so this Benedict, he's been a poet, but he hasn't been inspired to write in years, apparently. And he talked extensively about, man, if I just write, I don't care about being rich. I don't even care about being published. The problem for me is that I'm not writing at all. And he's Mm -hmm. allowed his lack of commercial success to stop him from being a writer. And he's talking about like, that's a writer is not someone who is commercially published a writer is not someone who is you know commercially successful a writer is someone who writes and who's writing yeah yeah and we need more people specifically among the uh lower classes you know to write to not give up on that spark that's what alan that's alan moore's big pitch in this one and lo and behold he did it for real he uh benedict parrot is based on a real friend of uh, Alan Moore's, who's actually who who was a poet who had kind of given up, you know, was a dirtbag. His name's uh, Dominic Allard, but Alan Moore always saw this talent in him, always encouraged him, always pushed him. And you know, at sixty-one, he published he published his uh, collection, "The Dying Fire" of his uh, poems. That's great. And the clip you heard at the top of the show was him reading a, a poem. Now it, it's really interesting, and his real story is really interesting. But what kind of fucked me up and like ties back into the book, if you want to read the great article about Dominic and Alan Moore, you can't. It's no longer on the Internet because the web, the local news website that was hosted on Northampton News has been bought by like some fake oh my next God. door company. So when oh you go no. to the link uh, to the story, it literally just takes you to like a British next door that asks you to put in a British zip code. Wow. And then you're just on the next door. There's no way to get to the archive except for archive.org, which, I mean, that's just so telling. It's like this was a local, like a, a local news yeah. site that that had documented this amazing thing that happened. This guy, uh, his best friend, his old friend happened to be one of the most well-known writers in the world and helped him uh, get a book published you know, 40 years after everybody had given up on them. That's a really beautiful story, but you can't yeah. see it because of some fucking bullshit next door competitor. That's what's happened to local news. That's what's happened to local yeah. publications around here. Their internet is being gentrified. Yeah. God, that is funny. We're like witnessing the next level of like what is basically described in this book. You know, yes. it's actually the history being like eaten up, the history being gobbled up by the future. Um, yeah, I thought this was a great thing. I guess apparently also some of the poetry in the chapter is some of uh, Dominic Allard's poetry, which is pretty cool. That's like, really cool. This I is really also, like you know, this is also describing the time around when Moore would have been writing this book, you know, and Alma's. Uh, um, uh, I guess photo, you know, um, 
what is it, gallery? Alma is doing like an art gallery or yes. something like that about Northampton. So that is supposed to be a stand-in for this very this book. book. That is Jerusalem. Oh, he that, did it. That Alma is like talking about <laughs> to to uh, uh, Dom or yeah to Benedict in this chapter. He, he did She's the Fellini. Like, he did the eight and a half. Yeah. The movie he's ma- the movie he's making is the movie he's making. Now, of course, what Moore, what Moore did is take ten extra years to release it than it was supposed <laughs> to be. Uh, he like was thought he was going to finish it earlier, but you know the, that's the way it remains. All right. So, and chapter nine, do as you darn well pleasey. Now, this very very interesting character, uh, very very interesting chapter featuring a very interesting character, um, Snowy char- Snowy Vernal. Uh, I think maybe our Dr. Manhattan of the book, <laughs> um, but, but like a chilled out, like drunk Dr. Manhattan, Tom like. Green esque Dr. <laughs> Manhattan. Well, it's funny. He's, he's Dr. Manhattan. You're right. You're right to say Tom Green esque because he's like Dr. Manhattan in that he like knows like exactly how he'll die and can see all the time. But unlike Dr. Manhattan, he doesn't like resolve that like that means everything is boring. He, he resolves like that means I can do anything. Yeah. Like when I can I climb won't... up on roofs and shit all the time because I know I'm not going to die from that. Yeah. And, and by do anything, he also, that also includes not helping his wife while she's giving birth in the gutter <laughs> in the, and they are and like actually just like looking at her from the roof because he knows his daughter is going to be born fine so he doesn't have to bother going down there he, like he knows it's going to work out he knows when they're going to die so it's like he knows nothing's going to happen so he's just like you know what i can just do this other thing yeah uh so he's standing on this on the roof of his house holding two doorknobs like magic wands <laughs> in the sun while his wife is cursing him the fuck out because she's in the fucking gutter in the street in the alley giving birth while he's doing nothing and like and a these- crowd of people keep coming by and they're all she's they're all coming to understand like that what is going on and they're like looking at up at him <laughs> and glaring at him yeah, and shit. And one, yeah like at one point a midwife asked him so where's your he- husband and she points up and she, and she thinks the midwife thinks oh he, he must have passed the ways in heaven and i'm still like no that motherfucker's right up there just <laughs> do anything. and there's some teens who like come around and harass her and like are making fun and and the wife has to chase him away but i mean it, it but we, what you find now is that snowy vernal um he had he he had his power and the vernals all have kind of different abilities but his ability is the i can see time all at once ability And he's looking at kind of what's going on in his his life, his children's life. And we should mention we didn't even mention this chapter is a frame chapter with Alma's brother who is having a vision of Snowy. Big May is being born. He is casting a magic spell, even though his he uses his powers in this kind of lackadaisical way. He he thinks it's kind of a curse because everybody thinks he's crazy because his in uh, interaction with the world is completely different than mm-hmm. ours because he sees it all at once. So everybody just thinks he's insane and he doesn't want that for his children. So he casts a spell to stop them from getting the powers. M- Big May is being born right now, yeah. but she's named after her grandmother, who's also named May. The woman giving birth is Louisa Vernal. So it goes May, Louisa, May. Yeah, I thought this chapter was, you know, 
very cool. Like, you know, I think that they're, you know, the, the portrayal of sort of the way Snowy sees the world was very cool. Um, and then also I thought this chapter was very funny. I think we're like, just, we're actually kind of watching like a really funny situation. And like, there's almost like a kind of British comedy or sketch kind of uh, feeling to like the group getting bigger and everybody chattering and everything like that. This is just like a pretty, it was like a funny chapter. This is Alan Moore doing another birth. Uh, we talked about, yeah, Miracle Man has a whole chapter, very explicit birth scene. Yeah. This, Alan Moore has two in a row in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And one like funny and the next one kind of like sadder. You know what yeah. I mean? Like this one kind of like a funny scene and then the next chapter like getting very real with it. Yeah. So chapter 10. The breeze, uh, the breeze that plucks the apron. Very sad chapter. Um, our POV character uh, is May. Uh, she's 19 at this time. This is uh, before she's uh, given birth uh, to little May. And we get to see a little bit more of her life, uh, how she felt about her father, Snowy, about, uh, her family, and just giving the lay of the land. And we kind of get the feeling that, you know, this is Alan Moore trying to tell the story of his family and basically mm-hmm. explained that all his family were artists and insane and uh, and more or less. And uh, this is what he's destined to do. It, there is even a talk about um, the name Vernal itself. What does that mean? Because mm-hmm. uh, up in up in the higher realm, your last name might uh, uh, is a designation of what your purpose is in life, just like it might be in just like it might have been, you know, in medieval England. Like if if you're uh, if you're a you know a blacksmith or something like that, you be, that'd be your last name. Vernal apparently means someone who has to check the corners, and the mm-hmm. corners, uh, as we learn in in this chapter, are kind of, and the angles. I, I think maybe uh, and the angles are like different like states of being. Like mm-hmm. if you like, uh, it's mentioned that. If you look at someone when they're alive, that's one angle. But looking at someone who's dead is a, just at another them end angle. On. Is looking at them end on, end on. And there yeah. was a lot of talk. There was a lot of talk in the previous chapter too, you know, from Snowy about the idea of like life being a Taurus and Taurus Tauruses being the life giver. And there's a lot of talk about looking at Tauruses end on, you know. So this uh, is the sad, sad tale of you know. Maybe not sad. Maybe not sad because the point is that it's not sad uh, about the life and death of the little May. And yeah. we're, we're told basically that when she was born, everybody says she's so beautiful. She's so lovely. And also uh, the Vernal family kind of knows that she's doomed, that she's not uh, going to be long for this world. And we hear this anxiety. Well, and that's from- also described as the, it, it's described as she'll be taken away from them. Like there's also a worry maybe that like the state would come yeah, and say like there was a mistake yeah. or something like it isn't just death. They were like, she's too perfect for like trash people like us. And so someone's going to take her away. Yeah. And May talks about this a lot in previous chapters and, and, and now about like even like just seeing two rich people, she's like mm-hmm. afraid of them trying to steal there's- her baby, which is like a where, real thing. Well, there's a, a part in the chapter where rich people like pass by and they're like, oh, such a shame to see like a beautiful baby with that type of person or whatever. And May thinks to herself, she's like, they would take the baby like if they could. If there was a way they could take the baby, they would take her right now. 
Yeah, and as we know, there are various ways in which this actually oh, happened. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and Al, I, one thing, Alan Moore is almost like reading almost like a people's history too, because he yeah. always dives into these little like indis- indignities to intro- atrocities that regular people had to live with, and he al- he always gets into like the mindset. Like in one chapter where he's talking about, oh, you know, you can only shower uh, when it's summer. Uh, basically, uh, because it's too cold, more or less, most of the time. Literally, midwives in in Northampton are called death mongers, yes. like because I would presume because like mortality, child mortality rates were so high. He more or less says like they got about fifty fifty bad in average, so they, they they get you they get you coming and going more or less. They, 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 yeah, they, probably better to just call them death mongers just to get it in get it in people's minds. You know what I mean? Because then you're happy if it's not death. Then you're like, great, it was you know life. That's great, and it's also like this you know kind of grim acceptance of it too that they said that he says specifically only people in northampton would get it only people in northampton would actually get this all circuit that all that is that tourist that life and death are two sides of the same corn so a midwife is also our death monger right yeah uh, but we spend a lot of time uh with mrs gibbs the death monger uh, uh in this chapter yeah, and she explicitly tells May this sort of thing because May doesn't have the vision that her father has, and May May notices that her father, who's always been kooky and basically never been there for her when she needed him, yeah. when little May died, he was very stoic, very calm, and then after that, he was with her anytime she needed him. Yeah, yeah, because Which is what she needed, like she she says, like weirdly, like I needed exactly that, you know, when when little May passed away. And it is because of his, you know, basically Dr. Manhattan ability that he like knew this would happen. So it's nothing. It's, it's like he can be perfectly calm about it. And he and it's so funny. He does the bare minimum of being her father. He does the, exactly where he needs to get. Like, all right, I'm going to be a shitty dad up until this point, but then I'm going to prove myself. She's really going to need me right then. <laughs> and that's Dude, the only time she'll really need me. It's like the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's like the Jesus uh, footprints uh, print, you know. Yes, yes. Uh, I was carrying you for that one time. <laughs> but man, it's it's a really sad chapter. But it's also mm-hmm. ultimately the Death Monger talks about this, and you pick this up um, from Snowy's behavior that even though May, you know, passed this baby passed away at eighteen months, it's you know, what would you rather? Not right. have those 18 months? Would you rather well, not and have also, that happiness? There was also like, you know, May sort of saying like, I felt like I had a premonition a little bit yes. about this. And I always had this feeling. And the death monger basically saying like, so what? Like maybe that what maybe it was always going to be the case. Like maybe if you had known back then, like what would you have gotten except for just like 18 months of worry? You know what I mean? Like you had this beautiful child for 18 months and you know, that is a beautiful thing unto itself. You know, I thought the chapter was actually quite uh, touching, you know, uh, especially like the perspective toward the end about like, even if it was only 18 months, at least you got that 18 months. Yeah, so this is basically the same plot as Arrival, uh, the, sure. the Amy Adams movie, w- without the aliens. It's more like just kooky uh, people but in Northampton. But there's ghosts, I guess. There's ghosts. Oh, yeah, we didn't mention, yeah, um, we there is a lot of talk 
in these chapters about, about ghosts, the ghosts and seeing ghosts. Yeah, yeah, but we yeah about the ghosts going around. Oh, looking and also for ghost about and also about and, and also about the idea of when you pass, you just go upstairs. Yeah, you know, there this idea not of like going up to heaven, but they they talk about in Northampton that when you die, you're upstairs. Um, and there, that's also a lot to do with the last name thing we were talking about earlier. Like this idea. You know, the, and then also there was a part, you know, where I think it was the Deathmonger. I can't remember exactly who, but she's like, what's it like up there? And there, and she's like, what do you think it'd be like? Like, mostly like here, <laughs> like, <they're laughs> like just like here. Like, what do you think? <laughs> Which is a very funny thing to think. Like, heaven is just like the same old just CVSs and bars and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm really enjoying this book. I'm interested to see where it, me too, where it's going, because it, it seems like every time we get. When it comes to certain things, Alan Moore is like saying, yeah, this is shitty, but it's okay. But then there's this other thing that's looming. There's a mention of these two towers that look like uh, Kubrickian monoliths, which are apparently real real buildings that Alan Moore fucking hates. In <laughs> that's very funny. Um, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention, and this, I, I don't know if this is actually the case for, you know, the actual poet, but I thought it was very interesting, if I if I can jump back just a little bit to the Benedict Parrott cha- uh, uh, chapter, that he was talking about how he tried to write a book about Northampton and his early drafts. He talks about the book Atlantis uh, and he's like, I was just really writing about my home. And when I was trying to do that, he talks about his failed start because he was trying to write about how ugly all this like contemporary stuff and how it was horrible that it had pushed away farms or whatever. And then he realizes he's like, I should have been writing about how much I love this stuff. Like the new shit moving in and pushing that out like extra sucks or whatever, (laughs) which I almost wonder is I wonder if that is in some way like more talking about even like his perspective on Northampton over the years, like where he might have been like more cynical about it when he was younger, like, oh, look at all these bars moving in, and, you know, getting rid of like the, the farms. And like now he's like, holy fuck, like they're moving in like like, you know, skyscrapers. And oh, my, I was wrong. The the last round is the one I should have been romanticizing. Oh, oh that reminds me of a funny line where he talks about. Yeah, there's a golf bar on the corner trying to darken up a block that used to have heads on pikes. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it wasn't like, that metal enough. <laughs> the all the everything kind of happening all at once, you know, and the sort of thinking about spaces as as everything that's happened at that space. Um, I think really works really well in this book. I think that you know, and it is starting to. You know, we're getting toward maybe about a third of the way through the book and it feels like we're kind of spiraling in and like tightening in a little bit more on like the family. And, you know, I, I, I like what more has done here. We've really started from like a huge vantage and kind of just like very slowly. And now we're kind of whirling around, yeah. you know, like a family lineage at this point. I started reading the next chapter and, you know, not to spoil it, but it also has a birth. We have like three birth chapters right in a row. Uh, and so it kind of everything is kind of getting a little more tightly intertwined over the generations uh, as we're continuing. All right, man. Um, there's too much to talk about. We could talk. I love version. it. There's there. We could talk about this for another hour. Folks, you're going to have to chime in and tell us what we didn't cover. Would you like to us to mention? There's the, so much. There's, there's so, so much. much. But I'm absolutely loving this book. If you if you are to please leave us a comment. You can also go to our new website, sesh.show, leave us a mm-hmm. voicemail. How about that? We got oh, voicemails wow. 
Now we I got a great one already. Someone just flushed a toilet on me. Look, Jack. Look, I have to be clear about this. I know you run things a little bit raunchier there over Jack <laughs> over on Jack A. We don't play that stuff on Stroke Show. I, I swear to God, if any I of those I don't toxic think you should Jack play A, that. I don't want that shit. I want people only asking me about my thoughts on various media, you know, and and culture. I don't need to hear just the sound of a toilet flushing. Okay, no Go prank on. calls. No prank. We should mention like Alan Moore has a fairly, you know, juvenile. He has a scatological. He has a scatological sense of humor. I actually loved in the Benedict Parrot chapter. He talks about how he wakes up and farts in his room, and then he forgot that he farted and comes back in, and he's like, "Whoa, that one's bad." He talks about how it was like uh, the kind of smell that reminds you you're still alive, which I thought was so funny. Yeah, Alan Moore. He's not trying to write anything highfalutin here. I think when people heard it was. Uh, you know, so big, a million words, they assumed it would just be incredibly pretentious. But a lot of this, this, like some of these chapters could be like, as you said, like sitcoms, like there is like the serial killers chapter, but there's also like these really, you know, kind of funny, silly ones. And there's also these really, you know, kind of sad, uh, sentimental ones like, uh, chapter 10. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, chapter nine, which is, you know, a really just in- inspirational one because, you know, it ends with that, that, uh, that Benedict guy saying, I'm not going to have another drink. I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm just going to write something now. And that's what changes everything uh, for him in the real world, because this is a real guy. I -hmm. like that in a book. I like that. I like I like finding out how much is based in reality. And I, I like you know, you don't always want to have all the little secrets, you know, uh, played out for you. But it is like there is kind of a weird and appealing kind of melding of biography, uh, autobiography and, and fiction here that I think is, is really a lot of fun. Yeah, I was, um, you know, Brett Easton Ellis did something very had always done something fairly similar to this. Less than zero. Lucy, sure. autobiographical. And then when you get to Luna Park. He's writing literally the main character is called Bray Easton Ellis, but he's straight married with a child uh-huh. uh, and he makes this like Stephen King supernatural tale starring himself. And then in, uh, <laughs> and in Imperial Bedrooms, he writes it. I, I don't even know how to describe it. He, he writes. So he writes it as if less than zero. How do I put this? How do I put this? So less than <laughs> so the sequel to Less Than Zero is not actually a sequel to the book Less Than Zero. It's a it's a sequel telling the story of what happened in the real world to the real people who the Less Than Zero was based on. Wow! <laughs> and they actually get to see they read the book that was written about them. Wow! They saw the movie that was made I about them. I think I did read this actually. Well, I'm like having a really vague recollection because I did like less than. I mean, I mean, I thought yeah, I like less than zero. It's you know, it's a really fucked up book, but I do like the book and the movie. I think I did try. I think I at least started this sequel, and it was very interesting. Yeah, the first line is they made a movie about us. And this first chapter, even if you don't read the whole book, I highly recommend anybody reading that first chapter because just the what it does to your brain to realize that this is a fictional character talking shit about the author of the book because the book he wrote 
about him was too negative and also trashing the movie adaptation while this is all fictional and then going in on it's it's really like i I really enjoy this kind of kind of thing it's really it's really fun i and he's and and the reason i brought it up is because brady's analysis he's actually as part of his podcast his new book is being released but is being released as the opening chat of his podcast the opening oh, wow. of his podcast is like a new chapter from his book, which is like semi autobiographical. I understand as well. I haven't dived into it yet, but it's you know kind of interesting. Brett Easton Ellis, Alan Moore crossover. Maybe we'll have to do a Brett Easton Ellis podcast after the Alan Moore podcast. I could, I could, I could do some reading. You know, we can, we can maybe have a look at it. I'm open to it. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. See you next time. Bye. Imagination is a lovely quicksand without will to govern it. Silver alone will not suffice. It must have a purpose. It must be alloyed with gold. Alone, our fantasies become a dismal opium. Unhappy masturbations, the unfinished screenplay, the abandoned goal, a quagmire of sour fancy. Raised from mud to moon, we find we think dream, have a personality. We start to wonder who this we is. Looking up, we squint into mysterious brilliance. We can't rest here. The DNA coil that we are snakes up through time, not space alone. Its tail drags in the plankton black of what we were. Its head strikes up at what we will be. Matter becomes aware, and then aware that it's aware, aware of mind. Next, in a universe of information, we glimpse meaning, glimpse a core of essence, we deduce a soul. This holy shimmer of significance is what is missing in Rossetti's poems after Lizzie Siddle's death, was there in those he buried with her, burning in each line, the ghostly, unrecoverable flame of art. ungraspable cannot be shammed it must be true and more than this be truth itself a blood of light at meaning's heart art is the highest the most rarefied of human works and the most arduous beauty is easily imagined but its realization will require a greater faculty require long yards of golden toil This path is steep. Hand over hand, we clamber upwards on the burnished chain of difficult ideas our snaking ladder has become towards a lucent stratosphere. Dream and determination must be wedded if the summit is to be achieved. The different metals of the sun and moon must plait together in a flawless braid. silver and our gold one with the other must be tempered must become each other blood and gluten are exchanged as the white eagle trades its hue with the red lion this is sex and transformation this is alchemy this uphill climb out of the scores of personality that we believe ourselves to be into the essence that we know we are 
as we ascend, our personal atmospheres begin to clarify. Fogs burned away by sun. The things we think we are dissolve. Our edges melt into the escalating brilliance. Our names fall from us like abandoned overcoats, along with all the habits, guilts and quarrels we have sewn like bricks into the hem, too hot and heavy for these altitudes. In mounting warmth, we strip away the underwear of our identity. Blushing and giggling, we pull our genders down around our ankles, and then naked, we climb on. The he and she of us become a limitation to our pleasure, sloughs away in favour of a more erotic possibility, the limitlessly horny intimacy, if we could become each other. Bright, distinctive clothing of ourselves torn off, discarded in a careless heap. The staid and separate restraints of us, abandoned in the urgent thrill of I. Male and female intertwined in a caduceus squirm, silver and gold fused in a dazzling metallurgic coitus. After the chimic wedding comes the chimic orgy. Sun marries moon, the fantasy is tempered in the deed. Rossetti brings another vision to completion. Frida Harris finishes the serpents on the skirts of art. This sensuous rhythmic pouring from one vessel to another, a cascade between the mind and soul, between our individual brush fires and the single blaze of self. Art in the human truth of it, touches the universal. Seeing art, we recognize a thought we had but could not utter, are made less alone, the eerie sense that there's just one of us. As species or as individual, these are our only stairs, no route save up into the brilliant haze. From past to future, every instant is a rung that we shall never tread again. In soul, dead matter is redeemed, mute loam revealed as a receptacle of meaning, deathless information endlessly reflecting in a stainless glass, and up, hand over hand along our shining fetter, up from flesh nailed by four points to matter, we are resurrected as a bliss of weightless code, a steam of language. It's April 10th, a church bell's reach from Easter, Cromwell, Lizzie Siddle, all of us, dragged from the vaults of earth to see the sun again. And in its shining, we remember what we are. And by its waking rays, see what we've done while we have been asleep. And oh God, whose is all this blood? species or as individual we approach the moment when the lights go on the point of comprehension and of revelation of apocalypse the sum of human information doubles ever faster every 15 months and counting the reaction at the core of us tips over into critical our crisis is approaching Though it may be in the late Victorian pornographic sense, pulse racing, human history convulses, nearing orgasm. Keep climbing, up into lucidity, the world below monstrously visible from here, 
All our cathedrals, our rape camps and our crematoria. Don't cry, my love. Keep climbing. We are each other, are the dead and living. We are Arthur Macken, and the odd thing is that when our wife died, it was we who went to heaven. We are Dante, Gabriel, Rossetti as they jemmy back the damp pine lid, and on the greening bones her hair like gorse fire still. And we will never write again. Don't fall. It seems we've struggled for so long. We've trampled on the backs of apes to clutch the muddied hems of angels. Don't let go. Don't slip. Don't falter. Now the meter of our feet grows swifter on the rungs. Keep rising up into the snow-blind glare. This is sex. This is alchemy. The rhythms in the loins and in the crucible become identical. Start slow and finish fast. Golds and silvers stirred together. Mind and motive, force and fancy. Male and female smelted to sublime hermaphrodite. We lift into the pulse and pour, into the fuse and flow, into the day. And it is now, and we are by this heat distilled, and it is now forever. And we step out in the white-hot streets of Sion, and in their radiance. We know ourselves. Like what you hear, want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.